All right. Well, thank you to our praise team for leading us in worship this morning. Thank you, Matt, for sharing your heart today about uh, the opportunities that are there for folks to take these children into their homes and to not only teach them the gospel, but to model it. And I'm so grateful for the ministry uh, of Matt and Amy and others in our church who have done that and who model that. And so thank you again, Matt, for sharing this morning. But let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Our text for today is verses 29 through 34. John chapter 1. We'll look at these uh, six verses this morning. Well, the older that I get, (laughs) just to be honest, uh, the less I like to drive long distance. I, I mentioned... Uh, our recent trip out to uh, Illinois, and there's no other way to say it. I mean, it's a long, long drive, 12 to 13 hours in the car. It's a long time. But with that being said, we, we always try to make the best of our trip. Rather than just staring at the pavement and just wanting to get the trip over, we, we try to enjoy the trip by, by looking at the scenery, by making observations along the way. We might point out that's new, or we've never seen that before. We, we talk together, we, we try to make the trip productive by bringing little projects with us to do in the car. If you think about it, a long trip like that is sort of a microcosm of the Christian life. We can view the Christian life as a grind, whine and moan and complain about the journey, or we can take advantage of the time that we have on this earth. You see, perspective, and I've said this a couple of times during our series in the Gospel of John, perspective and intentionality is absolutely paramount in the Christian life. Are we, are you and I, making the most of our time on our own journey? Because time... Is escaping us. Life is but a vapor, right? And so as we all continue to age, and our church is aging, we, we have a church now that's not just a toddler anymore. We're not a two- or three-year-old church. We're an 11-plus-year-old church, and many of us have grown up or grown older together. And we talk, and we visit, and we are in each other's lives, and we're helping one another to, to run the race of the Christian life. We, we see our life as a journey, but how we doing on the journey? How we doing on the journey? If you've been with us here at Grace Life over the course of the past couple of months, and you've been tr- keeping track, this is the seventh message in our study of the Gospel of John. Now, Certainly, we have a long way to go in our study, but I hope that you are enjoying and making the best of this journey that we're on together. Just as a reminder, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, the Gospel of John is one of four Gospels given to us in the Scriptures along with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels because they all essentially cover the same accounts in the life of Jesus, albeit from their own unique perspective. 
But as I mentioned early in our study, according to the Bible Knowledge Commentary, the Gospel of John has 93% original material in comparison to the Synoptic Gospels. And so in many ways, the Gospel of John stands separate from any other book in the Bible. And so if we could pick just one book of the Bible that would best tell us about who Jesus really is and what he provides to sinners who turn to him in repentance and faith, the gospel of John would be it. This is a treasure that we've been given by God Almighty. The gospel, this particular gospel that we've been pouring over in great detail was written by John Uh, the son of Zebedee, and John was the apostle that was especially loved by Jesus. And so, as you would expect, this gospel begins by describing who Jesus really is. In verse 1, John tells us that uh, Jesus is eternal God. And then in verse 3, he shares that not only is Jesus eternal God, but he is the creator of all things. But John is quick to point out in verses 4 and 5 that Jesus is not some distant, impersonal uh, deity. He is the light, and he is the giver of life. And aren't you glad that Jesus loves us, and he cares for us, and he provides for us, and he's there for us? He He doesn't sleep. He doesn't take a day off. He's always there for us. And we're learning about our Savior as we go through this gospel. And so after briefly introducing us to John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8, and then putting some real meat on the bones as it relates to Jesus' incarnation, the Apostle John shifts back to who John the Baptist is and his significance as the forerunner of Jesus, the one whom God chose to announce the public ministry of the Christ, the the anointed one. The one who preached a message of repentance from sin and who baptized repentant sinners in water. And of course, that's where he got his nickname, right? John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. And so in our our passage for today, the Apostle John records uh, for us where the worlds of John the Baptist and Jesus collide. This is a tremendous passage that we're going to look at today. Today, we're going to consider this monumental encounter, which really serves as the official launch point of Jesus' public ministry. Now, again, just so we can kind of catch all of this, Jesus lived in virtual obscurity for the first 30 years of his life. Okay, we know about his birth in the Gospels, and we'll celebrate his birth uh, this Christmas, and we'll look forward to that as a church, to be able to celebrate the birth of our Savior. But he, he, he lived in virtual obscurity for the next 30 years of his life. But what we'll see today is that Jesus is revealed in a special way to the world in this encounter that we're going to look at today. And so today in verses 29 through 34, we'll see that Jesus is the true Messiah both the Lamb of God and the Son of God, who has been sent to baptize repentant sinners, not in water like John, but to baptize them with the the very Spirit of God. And so today we're going to find a shift away from the person of Christ to the work of Christ, from the revelation of Christ as Messiah to the proof 
of Christ as Messiah. And so here in our text for today, in verses 29 through 34, we're going to find four testimonials from John the Baptist about Jesus the Christ, the Anointed One. So let's take a look at our passage for this morning, beginning with verse 29. It says this, The next day he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and testified that this, (laughs) this is the Son of God. So our mission for today is to consider the significance of these truths about Jesus the baptizer. And the first testimonial that we find here is uh, in verses 29 and 30, and it's that John the Baptist testifies that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look again at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And so what we just read is just one day following John the Baptist's encounter with the priests and the Levites that we looked at last week. And so this is the very next day. The very next day, John has this this encounter with Jesus. And this is absolutely huge. When John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, what he is saying is that man's sin would no longer be temporarily covered over by sacrificing baby sheep or goats, but instead Jesus is the Lamb of God sent by God the Father to provide a permanent atonement for the sins of all who would believe in him. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus, right? You remember the story of of Abraham and Isaac. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 22. And so when God told Abraham to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son, and and, and let me just say, those of you who are going to go on the Israel trip, trip with us in November of 2023, we will be right there where this happened. We will stand on Mount Moriah where this happened. And by the way, Mount Moriah is also the place where the Temple Mount is. And so it's right there. Two major significant uh, events in biblical history are right there together. Mount Moriah over here, where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him. And then over here, where Solomon built the first temple and now is inhabited by uh, a Muslim Islamic mosque. But we're going to be right there, right here, of what's being described in Genesis chapter 2 at Mount Moriah. And so on the way up to the mountain, you remember the story, Isaac asks his dad 
uh, well, what animal is going to be sacrificed? And Abraham answered his son, and this is recorded in Genesis 22 and verse 8. He said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And that's exactly what happened. Again, if you remember the story, Abraham was about to thrust a knife into his son on the altar, just going to obey God. God told him to do this. He, he didn't ask any questions. He just did it. He was going to do that. But then the Lord provided a lamb to take Isaac's place. Some of your translations say that it was a, a ram, a lamb or a ram. But, but the Lord provided a substitute for Isaac. And Abraham called that place, you remember? He called that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And, and do you believe that? I mean, do we need a story like Abraham and Isaac and what happened on Mount Moriah for us to even wonder or to think about if the Lord actually does provide for us? I think we get so caught up in life. I think we get so caught up in our day-to-day -day experience. I think we're constantly trying to just keep our heads above water that we forget that God sustains us. God provides for us each and every day. Every single meal that we eat is a provision from God. If you got a dollar in the bank or a couple bucks in the bank, that's been provided to you by God Almighty, the sovereign ruler of the universe. Your families, all of your possessions, and then especially your salvation. The Lord provides. Again, I, I began today by talking about perspective, and I think, I think sometimes we need a, a, a recalibration or a readjustment so that we're thinking about things the way that God thinks about things. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is to remember that it is the Lord who provides these things for us in our lives. I mean, He has been so gracious to us. And you know, the thing is, God is so good. Matt read for us this morning, Psalm 100. I love that psalm because the two main themes in the song is that He is God and He is good. And so could you imagine if He was just God, if he was just God and he wasn't good, upon our first sin, we would be devastated and killed. But he's not just God, he is good. He is a good God, and he is a near God. And so he is there for us to provide for us and to, to, to love on us and to, to uh, help us as we walk through this Christian life. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide and so this encounter that Abraham has with Isaac was a foreshadowing of God's own future sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament economy, there was a system in place for the sins of the people to be covered over by offering a lamb or a goat of sacrifice. Each year, every year on the Day of Atonement, which is also known as Yom Kippur, the high priest was to perform very detailed rituals to atone for the sins of the people. But this was a temporary covering, and it had to be repeated every year. Let's just go back. A couple of verses here. You don't have to turn there if you don't like, but I, I want to read this to you. Leviticus chapter 23. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the first five books of the Bible referred to as the Pentateuch, written by Moses, or the Torah, Leviticus chapter 23, just two verses, but it speaks of the Day of Atonement. Well, let's look at verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. Verse 28, you shall not do any work on this same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. And so why this is so huge as we go back then to John chapter 1, why this is so huge is that John the Baptist is identifying Jesus as the need, as the end for the, of the need of this yearly ritual that had been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus is the end of this ritual that they know as Yom Kippur the day of atonement, because he had been sent by the Father to be the once for all sacrifice for sin. Jesus was the Lamb of God. Hebrews seven twenty seven says, who has no daily need like those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he, meaning Jesus, the Lamb of God, did this once for all time when he offered up himself. You see, the, the, the blood of bulls and goats could only temporarily atone for sins, which is proven by the fact that this ritual was continually done year after year after year. But when John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, he is saying that this Lamb, Jesus, the Lagos, his sacrifice would be sufficient for all the sins of all who would ever believe in him. Amazing. Amazing. We have the encounter of John the Baptist and Jesus, and this is such a significant turning point in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he will do. And so right before Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? What did he say in, in John 19 and verse 30? It is finished, right? And then in Hebrews 10, 1 through 12, we learn that because his work of permanent atonement was accomplished, he then sits down at the right hand of God. Why? Why? Because his work was done. Last Saturday afternoon, before it turned really cold, the last few days, I, I went out, and I always have to do this every year before it turns off really cold, I went out and I did some much needed yard work to get ready for the winter. And so I was out for a few hours and, and after everything that I had set out to do was finished, I went in the house and I sat down. My work was done. And it's the same with the finished work of Christ, the sinless Lamb of God. His work was completed, finished, Never to be repeated again. When I was in Israel, we went up to the top of Tel Dan, and I've explained to you, I think, what a Tel is. Some of you know this. But, you know, when there was a, a civilization that was living in, in Israel in another uh, 
country would come in and whip them or whatever, they would take over and then they would rebuild on top of the same uh, infrastructure. And so they have tells all over Israel. So it's civilization upon civilization upon civilization. Well, at the top of this one tell called Tel Dan, in the district of Dan, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, at the very top of it, so you, you walk all the way up this thing, and it takes a while, uh, and we got all the way up to the top, and there is an altar at the top. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful, perfectly restored. I mean, intact from its days that it was in use. And so we get up there, and of course, there are no more sacrifices, uh, animal sacrifices in, in Israel. But I was talking to the guide, and I've mentioned this before, and I, I went up to him and I said, you know, this right here, this is, this is perfect. This is a perfect visual that we don't need these uh, sacrifices anymore. Because Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. And uh, this was a non-practicing Jew, and I became friends with him on the trip. We had a great time together. But he goes, you, you've got to tell the other people. You've got to tell the other people that this isn't needed anymore because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. And I said, they already know. They already know. That's, what, that's the common bond that we have in Christ. That Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for sin. And by turning to Him in repentance and faith, we can have eternal life. This isn't needed anymore. These animal sacrifices, the Day of Atonement, it's not needed anymore. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. His work has been completed and now He's seated at the right hand of God. Symbolic? Maybe. It is finished. Go with me back to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We want to get the full picture of all of this because this is monumental, obviously, in the heart of every repentant sinner. And this is the message that we proclaim to those who need Christ. So Hebrews chapter 10 is very helpful. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been clean, cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. And that's what we're talking about. Okay? For it is impossible, he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats or any other animal to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have taken no pleasure And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And after after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. 
And by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time with the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has prepared for all time those who are sacrificed. And so the difference is that what transpired in these sacrifices was a temporary covering. It was temporary. It wasn't a permanent covering. It wasn't a permanent atonement. It was a temporary covering. And so let me explain this in a way that I hope we can understand what happened on the cross. Okay? Sin was both propitiated and expiated by Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Propitiation means satisfaction. So Jesus' death satisfied the righteous anger, the wrath of God against the sin for all who would believe in Jesus for salvation. That's propitiation. Expiation is the act of atoning for sin and removing its penalty from the sinner. And so both propitiation and expiation happened on the cross. Romans 5.9 says, Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? And this is why the psalmist wrote that, that very promise in Psalm 103 and verse 12 that God would eventually remove our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west and that he would remember them no more. Hebrews 8 and verse 12. I mentioned about our trip, you know, 12, 13 hours in the car. I mean, that only got us to the middle part of the country. I mean, to drive from the east coast all the way to the west coast, can you imagine how far that is? Some of us have flown out to California to attend the Shepherds Conference, and it's a long flight, six hours in the air. Could you imagine how long it would take to drive that? But then think about as far as the east is from the west. If you go west as far as you can go, and you go east as far as you can go, that's how far our sins have been removed from us in the sight of God. Why? Because Jesus came to provide the sacrifice for our sin, the perfect Lamb of God, the only one that could fit the bill to go to the, Christ, to the cross as the spotless, sinless sacrifice that God would accept. We're not done. The word world here in verse 30 you see it? The word world here is the Greek word cosmos, and it has various meanings that often have to be determined by the context. There are actually eight different definitions of this one word in the interlinear, in the interlinear Greek lexicon. For instance, and, and this is important for us to understand, in John 3.16, we find that God so loved the world, right? Right? 
maybe the first verse that you ever memorized as a child. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The word world in John 3.16 is the Greek word cosmos. Okay, But in John 2.15, the same apostle John, by the way, says this. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so you look at that and you go, well, hold it. God loves the world, but we're not to love the world? What, what's going on here? These seem contradictory. But they're not because, as I said, there are multiple meanings of the word cosmos. So in First John 2 and verse 15, when the, world, when the word world is used, it's referring to the world system that is operated by Satan. We're not to love the world system. But throughout Scripture, we find that God loves the world, and of course, we're to love the things that He loves. And so which is it? Which is it? Are we to love the world, or are we not to love the world? Well, well here in John 1, 29, in John three sixteen, John is using the word world, not in the reference to the world system, but in a general sense, referring to all mankind. So God loves those whom He created. He loves those who inhabit the world. And then here at the end of verse 30, we have John the Baptist reiterating the same truth that he shared earlier, that Jesus is the eternal God. And so as he acknowledges that Jesus existed before him, he's saying Jesus, this Jesus, the Lagos, the visible, tangible expression of God, is the eternal God. He is God. So we know from the gospel accounts that John the Baptist was actually six months older than Jesus, but here he says that Jesus existed before him, which is true. This is how the Apostle John began this gospel. In verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the visible, tangible expression of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So listen to this prophecy from Isaiah some 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus, found in Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Praise the Lord, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the only one that can take away sin through his sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary because he qualified himself to be that spotless, sinless lamb because he lived a perfect life on the earth. So where we're at now is we're like 30 years in. Jesus has lived 30 years of his life perfectly. 
as the sinless Son of God, and now he is revealed as the Lamb of God. It gets better. The second testimonial from John the Baptist is that he testifies that Jesus received the Spirit of God at his baptism. Look at verse 31. I did not recognize him. And we're going to talk about that. What does that mean? He says, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And so when John the Baptist says here he didn't recognize Jesus, he most likely means that although he knew of Jesus, or maybe had known of Jesus for years, after all, he was his cousin, Jesus had not yet, not yet, until this moment, he had not yet launched his public ministry declaring himself to be the Messiah. And so this encounter is Jesus' coming out party. John had proclaimed about the coming Messiah, and now he is here in all of his fullness, the sinless Lamb of God. As the forerunner to Jesus, John had been faithfully baptizing in water those who had repented of their sins, but there's something quite different about Jesus, right? He was sinless. He was sinless. He was the perfect God-man. So why would Jesus be baptized? And what happened at his baptism? Well, we have the answers here in verses 31 and 32. First, if you remember, at the heart of the meaning of baptism is identification, right? Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist because he identifies with his message. But not just that he identifies with his message, it was foreordained that Jesus' baptism would serve as the conduit for Jesus to receive the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that would guide him throughout his public ministry. So you remember, we we considered this a couple of weeks back about the kenosis in Philippians chapter 2. While Jesus was on the earth, he humbled himself by willingly emptying himself by willingly setting aside the independent use of some of his divine attributes without in any way relinquishing his deity. And part of that display of humility is willingly, he willingly came to do the will of the Father, even becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. And so while Jesus was on the earth, yes, he came to reveal God to man, but while he was on the earth, Jesus served as the perfect example of humility And he did the will of the Father through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So it was at at Jesus' baptism that John fully knew that he was the promised Messiah. Matthew 3, 16 and 17 says this, After he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove, and settling on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Remarkable encounter. The third testimonial from John the Baptist is that he testifies that Jesus baptizes repentant sinners with the Spirit of God. Verse 33, I did not recognize him, But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending 
and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And so first, Jesus is declared the Lamb of God. Second, at his baptism, he receives the Spirit of God. And now third, Jesus baptizes repentant sinners with the Spirit of God. And so John baptized in water, but Jesus baptized people with the Spirit. You may not have seen this before or thought about it this way, but Jesus is given the Holy Spirit in part to give the Holy Spirit. It's repeated over and over that John baptizes in water, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so all true Christians have had their sins forgiven and have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, but because there's no salvation in anyone but Jesus, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. It's Jesus who gives people the Holy Spirit because it's the Spirit of God who gives eternal life, spiritual life. John 3.3 says, unless one is born again, in other words, unless one is given spiritual life through the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 6.63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, and then he gives the Holy Spirit to those whom he saves. And the Bible calls this the baptism of the Spirit. Unless the Spirit baptizes you, you are not a Christian. There's all kinds of ministries that the Holy Spirit of God has. I mean, we know that as Christians, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God upon conversion, upon our faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God indwells us, right? And that happens at conversion. Also, at conversion, we find here that we are baptized with the Spirit. And later in 1 Corinthians 12, I believe it is, in verse 13 perhaps, don't hold me to that, uh, but I think it says there that that baptism places us into the body of Christ. There's, there's all kinds of things that happen at conversion. We know from Ephesians chapter 5 uh, that uh, we are to be filled with the Spirit. Right, And so that's something that we actually have to contribute to. In other words, we have to be obedient to, to God and, and be repentant of sin. And, and He fills us with the Spirit, or His Spirit controls us in the Christian life. We're indwelt, yes, but the empowerment is through being Spirit-filled. So all these things, all these different ministries that the Holy Spirit of God has But Jesus receives the Holy Spirit here, and He gives the Holy Spirit to those whom He saves. The baptism of the Spirit. The fourth testimonial from John the Baptist is that he testifies that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Look at verse 34. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. There He is. The very Son of God. All believers are referred to as sons, daughters of God. But this title is different. It's unique. It's another reference to His deity. Jesus is the Son of God. 
The second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, He's on the earth for 40 days in the glorified body. He interacts with with hundreds of people, including His disciples. And so what does He say before He departs? What does Jesus say in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 before He departs up into heaven, before He ascends up into heaven to do His work, to prepare a place for us? John 14. He says... And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, what has he commanded them to do? Well, we're going to learn about all this as we go through the Gospel of John. That's what happened during his public ministry, the final three years of his life on the earth. First 30, virtual obscurity. We learn a little bit about some things when he was little, certainly his birth, a couple of encounters, but we don't know much about what Jesus did uh, during his life. It's not recorded for us in the Scripture. But where it starts recording is right here, right here at his public proclamation his baptism, this is when his, his public ministry is launched. And so now we're going to work our way through his public ministry in the Gospel of John. We're going to see his works. John begins by telling us all about who he is, and now we're going to learn about what he does that proves who he is. You know, anybody can say anything about themselves, right? I'm the smartest guy in the world. I'm the smartest guy in the world. Well, if you're so smart, then what is this? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure. (laughs) But I'm the smartest guy in the world. Well, what about this? Well, I don't know about that either, but I'm the smartest guy in the world. You see, anybody can say anything about themselves. They can say that they're this or that or whatever, but where's the proof? Where's the proof? A lot of people say they're a Christian right? A lot of people tell you that they are a Christian, but we look at their life and we go, where's the proof? Where's the proof? James says faith without works is dead, right? Where's the proof? Where's the proof that you're a Christian? Where's the proof that you love Christ and you love the things that Christ loves? Well, I haven't been to church in 30 years. Where's the proof that you're a Christian? Jesus loved the church. He gave himself up for the church, and you're not involved. You're not even interacting with the church. Where's the proof? I think that's a legitimate question, right? I think it's a legitimate question for us to ask first about ourselves, and then maybe others who say, No, I'm a Christian. No, trust me, I'm a Christian. What's a Christian? What's a Christian? Is a Christian someone who knows about Jesus? Because I would contend that most people know about Jesus. Wouldn't you? I mean, all of my unbelievers and all the unbelievers in my family, they know about Jesus. They know all about Him. But they've never trusted Him for salvation. They've never seen their sin the way that God sees their sin. They've never repented of their sin. They've never place their faith and trust in Jesus and Him alone for salvation, but they know about Jesus. They're a Christian. This is a Christian nation, right? 
That's what they tell us. Doesn't look like a Christian nation to me. And by the way, a nation isn't Christian. People are Christians, right? So where's the proof? Where's the proof? Look, we're not going to be perfect in this life, and we know that. And this same John says that. If we say that we have no sin, we are lying, and the truth is not in it. Yes, we struggle with sin in this life, but where's the proof? Where's the proof of our life? You see, what we see before us in the Gospel of John is now the proof that He is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the one who extends the Spirit of God in baptism to those who believe in Him. We're going to see the proof. And it says here uh, at the end, verse 34, I myself, this is an eyewitness account, I myself have seen and testified that this man who was baptized and the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove, I have testified that this is the Son of God. This is why John the Baptist came, to get to this moment, to get to this point, to be able to go, see, that's him. That's who I've been talking about all this time. Here he is. This is him, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who takes away the sins of the world. No sins will be taken away, permanently taken away by anything other than Jesus. We have a message. uh, Jesus said before he left the earth that we are to go and to tell people about Jesus. He said this to his disciples, certainly, but he used those disciples to establish the church. The church has the same obligation to tell people about Christ, to make disciples, and then baptizing the, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then to teach them all that Jesus commanded while he was on the earth. What did he command? Well, we're going to learn about it as we complete our study of the Gospel of John. We're all on a journey, folks. We're all on a journey. It's how I began the message today. We're all on a journey. We're all on a journey. A lot of us are staring at the pavement. We're just staring at the pavement. We just want to get this thing going. Get this thing over with. Let's get this thing over with. Instead of using the journey for God's glory. Being productive in the Christian life. There's so much to do for the Lord. There's so much to do. Look, we don't earn our salvation by doing stuff. But it's an evidence that we're a true believer in Christ. Anyone can say they're a Christian. I hear it all the time. Oh, we're a Christian. Okay. Okay. Tell me what a Christian is. You know. Yeah, I do know, but you tell me. Tell me what, what, what's a Christian. And the answers I get are not good. Not good. You see, we live in a dying world. We're, we're, we're driving on this journey and there's dead bodies all over the place. There's people that need Jesus all over the place. John the Baptist came to testify about the God-man, Jesus Christ. What's our job? 
testify about Jesus Christ, the God-man, right? Ambassadors of Christ. I, uh, I am not only humbled each and every week as I pour over the Gospel of John and introspective of my own life, my own testimony, examining my own journey, I, I, I almost can't wait to get here and talk to you about these things because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's powerful. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, you can say you're a Christian. A lot of people do. There's only one way to the Father, and it's through the Son the Son of God, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Amen? I mean, if we can't amen that, then what are we doing? Right? We'll get all charismatic in here this morning and we'll start shouting amen because this is the truth of the gospel that we are to proclaim to others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your love and your grace and your mercy, but you know we cannot thank you more than for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God that you sent from the glories of heaven to come and, and to die as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And by placing our faith and trust in Him and His sacrifice, we can have eternal life. By seeing our sin the way you see it and repenting of it and, and then turning to Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the one who gives the Spirit of God. Lord, you have done amazing things for us. And we want to acknowledge that today. And we want to live our lives for you. We want no one to wonder if we're a Christian because we want to live it out. Live it out loud. We know Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. We thank you and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.